All of you know this verse, but repeat it after me. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. And his courts with praise. And his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Bless his name. These are the famous words of Psalm 100, verse 4. And we wholeheartedly agree with them. And we delight in them. We love those words. They encourage us. But I have a question for you. Is entering into his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise, is that the starting point of biblical worship or is that the culmination? Is that the finale? Is that the end point of biblical worship? Let me put this in terms that all of us can relate to. I I simply want to ask the question, where does your heart and your soul and your mind begin when you walk through the doors of your local church to worship God or when you sit down to open your Bible and to come into the presence of God, where do you start? So to answer this question, I want to go all the way back to Israel in the time of the Exodus, and we'll work our way toward talking about the importance of singing and worship. We will talk about singing, but we need to lay this foundation here first. And you know the story, but just to get our minds back in that time, God had rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt. He's about to officially form them into a nation by giving them His covenant In Exodus 19, God commands that his redeemed people make themselves ready. They're about to meet with him at Mount Sinai. They were to take three days to get ready to meet with God. They were to purify themselves in all ways. And on the third day, God manifested himself with thunders and lightnings and smoke and fire and a great sound of a trumpet, a deafening trumpet blast to gather his people. And God gave a covenant to them. He gave them the Ten Commandments, the principles which would set Israel apart from all other nations and show the world what a nation fully submitted to the one true living God would look like. And we're familiar with that. But what we're less familiar with is that immediately following the giving of the Ten Commandments, God preached a sermon to Israel. And this sermon was known in Exodus 24 as the Book of the Covenant. And in this sermon, God gives dozens and dozens of practical ways to live out the Ten Commandments and how they were to work themselves out in the daily life of those who were faithful and who loved God. And right at the start of the Book of the Covenant, right at the very beginning, at the end of Exodus chapter 20, God gives a specific command concerning worship. And here's His command. Exodus 20, 24, and 25 says, An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. Now, you know the Old Testament. Very soon, God would give more elaborate worship structures, including an elaborate altar. But first, there was a lesson to be learned. And that lesson was, how do you worship God? That one does not just approach God any way he feels like it. That there are prerequisites. There are qualifications to entering his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. And those two verses I just read, we can see three of these prerequisites. The first prerequisite to entering into his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise we'll call brokenness. Brokenness. Now, before God would give the elaborate worship structures of the the tabernacle and then ultimately the temple, 
He's teaching them not to be distracted, not to be distracted by structures, by trappings, to not focus more on the place of worship rather than the object of worship. There was to be an awe of God and God alone that the accessories and the frills of worship couldn't substitute for. Or to put it this way, God was after distraction-free worship where there was nowhere else to look, no distraction, nothing else to think about. So God starts Israel off with, you had two choices, an altar of dirt or a pile of rocks. Those are the choices. And with a dirt altar or a stone altar, no one could be distracted by the accoutrements, by the paraphernalia of worship. You could enter into worship with awe, with reverence, with fear, with joy, with anticipation. Nothing to distract you whatsoever from the fact that you were meeting with God. And this was meant to cause a reaction in the heart of the worshiper. It was a reaction similar to the prophet Isaiah when he came face to face with the glory of God in Isaiah 6. He was alarmed. He he said, woe is me, I'm lost. It's a word that means unraveled, I'm unhinged, I'm undone. He was broken before God. And he says, why? He said, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Isaiah understood his dilemma in attempting to worship God, that he was unholy and God is holy. And so there ought to be a sense of brokenness, a sense of sobriety, of seriousness. Can I use this word? Even alarm at the idea of daring to appear before holy God. Now, I understand the temptation is to say, well, today is different. Jesus is the kinder, gentler version of God, and I come to him as his buddy and as his companion. The same Jesus, of whom Revelation 1, 14 and 15 says, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. The same Jesus of whom Revelation 19, 15 says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. The the same Jesus of whom Revelation 20, verse 11 says, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it and from his presence earth and sky fled away. Yes, Jesus is our good, gentle shepherd. But that does not diminish, it does not erase his might, his power, and the awe that we ought to have in approaching Almighty God. In other words, we don't enter into worship with frivolity or triviality or silliness or foolishness. We enter first with brokenness. With brokenness. That's the first prerequisite to entering his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. This text shows us another prerequisite. It's blood. Blood. The altar has always been the center of worship of God, all the way going back to Abel, making his sacrifices to God. The altar is the place of shed blood, the place of atonement. The altar was the means by which a holy, perfect God could receive unto himself an unholy, sin-filled people through the temporary transference of guilt to a sacrifice. In other words, the greatest joy and the greatest privilege that you have and that I have as a human being is to be allowed and permitted into the presence of God, to worship God. 
But something that the Israelite learned very early on is that worship costs. Worship has a price. The faithful Israelite didn't get to just worship God because he felt like it. He didn't go to the altar because there was a really good worship band or because he needed an emotional lift or because he needed inspiration to make it through Monday. He went to the altar because to meet with God, blood must be spilled. It had to happen. And his worship must be paid for because his sins must be dealt with. Why is that? Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. To enter his gates with thanksgiving, to enter his courts with praise, you have to have brokenness. You had to have blood. There's a third prerequisite. We'll call it belief. Belief. The prescribed altars could be made of a pile of dirt or a pile of rocks. Nothing very fancy at all. And what does this tell us? This tells us that the worshiper was to come to God by faith and and faith alone. No one would mistake this altar as having some sort of power or intrinsic presence to it. No one would mistake the altar for God himself. No one would bow down to the altar, in other words. In fact, right before these commands concerning the altar, God prohibited the making of idols of silver or gold. God is saying, you're not going to drag your idols into my presence You won't even make an altar that could be mistaken for something worthy of being worshipped. It's a pile of dirt or a pile of rocks. Because the true worshiper didn't come with just sacrifices. That's purely external. He came with an inward, internal reality of faith, a total other belief in the true and living and only God, that the true believer in God doesn't bring souvenirs from his past pagan life. You will bring nothing to the altar You come only to God alone, and and the same is true for us. The true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ will not and cannot bring along mementos from his past. He can't bring anything that he might try to worship alongside God. In fact, Jesus said so very clearly in Luke 14.33, he said, Therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Can I put it this way? The unbeliever is utterly incapable of worshiping God. No matter how great our music is, no matter how welcoming and kind our people and our churches are, no matter how inclusive our worship may seem, God does not and will not receive the so-called worship of the non-Christian. In fact, God told the false believers of Amos 5 verse 23, take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen So we don't just go to God on a whim. There are prerequisites, brokenness, blood, belief. And now the worshiper of God has been stripped of all the trappings of worship. Other people fade into the background. The earth fades into the background. The sky fades into the background. There's just a plain, unadorned altar and the worshiper is standing, facing, holy, holy, holy God. And there's fear, there's trembling, there's terror, because there's nothing except the worshiper, a plain unadorned altar, and a holy, mighty, wrathful God. Oh, but here's where the good news is. Because on the altar, there is blood. On the altar, between the worshiper and between God, a sacrifice has been made. You've been stripped of all of your idols. 
You've been stripped of anything that you ever thought might please God. There are no good works you can do. There are no religious acts you can perform. There's nothing except you facing Almighty God. But between you and Almighty God is a plain, unadorned cross. It's bloody. It's plain. The cross upon which the very Son of God purchased your salvation Romans 6.23 does tell us, for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And now you've been pronounced by God as justified and redeemed and forgiven and clean and worthy to stand in his glorious presence. And since you've been now pronounced by God as justified and redeemed and forgiven and clean and worthy to stand in his glorious presence, what do you do now? Now you enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. You give thanks to him. You bless his name. And now you sing because of the cross. And now the treasures and the storehouses and the riches of singing unto God our Savior are are thrown open to us. And now through Christ we're freed to sing to the Lord. And these, these riches, these treasures, these storehouses are available. So when do you sing? When do you sing? Here's what the Bible says. The Bible says we sing to boast of God's triumph. Exodus 15. We sing to be glad of God's provision. Numbers 21. We sing to remind us to obey God. Deuteronomy 31. We sing to learn God's word, Deuteronomy 32. We sing to celebrate God's protection, 1 Samuel 18. We sing to rejoice in God's favor, 2 Samuel 6. We sing to proclaim God's salvation to the nations, 2 Samuel 22. We sing to give formal thanks unto God, 1 Chronicles 16. We sing to remember God's mighty deeds, to herald God's coming judgment. We sing to celebrate God's covenant faithfulness. The Bible says we sing to receive God's strength for battle, to accompany our own offerings to God. We sing to express glad hearts before the Lord. We sing to express humility before the Lord. We sing to worship God with might and with strength, 2 Chronicles 30. We cry out to God in times of trouble by singing, 2 Chronicles 35. We sing to proclaim profound joy in God. Nehemiah 12, we sing to boast of God's rescue of the helpless. Job 29, we sing to publicly repent of our sin before God. Job 33, we sing to announce that God is the creator of the universe. Job 38, we sing to rejoice that God is a refuge to exalt God's righteousness, to lift up God's holy name, to praise God's overwhelming generosity, to remember that God will crush his enemies to recount God's attributes, his holiness, his glory, his greatness, to break our silence concerning God's glory, Psalm 30, to transfer glory from ourselves unto God, Psalm 30, to give back to God the very songs he gave to us to sing. We sing to pray for God's comfort when it's dark. We sing to extol the future reign of God's Messiah on earth, Psalm 45. We sing to acknowledge that God has the right to rule on earth. We sing to respond to God's forgiveness of sin. We sing to express determination to follow God, to convey my soul's satisfaction in God. We sing to ascribe glory and honor and might to God. We sing to call to the kingdoms of earth to submit to God. We sing to declare that God's righteous anger is utterly unstoppable. We sing to remember God's kindness when we are in pain and depression, Psalm 77. 
We sing to cry out to God for justice on the earth, Psalm 83. We sing to unite our bodies and our spirits in voices to praise God. We sing to proclaim God's love to our children and to our grandchildren, Psalm 89. We sing to proclaim God's providence in the world, to be a blessing to God, to tell stories about God's valiant nature, to sing the scriptures back to God, to pray for God's help amidst the wicked, to remind us that God preserves the saved, to beg for God's blessing, to celebrate with God when your weeping is done, to give strength to wait on God, to remind God of his promises, to enjoy unity among God's people, to proclaim the fame of God. That's just the Old Testament. We sing to remember God's sacrifice of Christ. Matthew 26, we sing to attend suffering for Christ's gospel. Acts 16, we sing to thank God that Christ saves heathens like us. Romans 15, we sing to rehearse the great truths of God in Christ. 1 Corinthians 14, we sing to encourage one another in Christ's church. Ephesians 5. We sing to proclaim Christ to fellow believers, Hebrews 2. We sing to accompany being imprisoned for Christ's gospel, Acts 16. We sing to express being cheerful in Christ, James 5. We sing to shout out the worth of Christ, Revelation 5. To proclaim that Christ is judge, Revelation 5. To remember the death of Christ, Revelation 5. To boast that Christ will save people from every tribe and language and people and nation, Revelation 5. Revelation 5 also says we sing to proclaim that Christ is alive. And we sing to announce that Christ is worthy, as Revelation 5 says, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And, and we sing to Christ, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, as Revelation 15 proclaims in song, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. That's just a little tiny smattering of the reasons we sing. If you were counting, that was 70 reasons to sing unto God. Because nothing stood between you and the wrath of Almighty God except Christ on a plain, unadorned, bloodied cross at Golgotha. So now we, repeat after me, enter his gates with thanksgiving. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Give thanks to him and bless his name. Bless his name. Would you pray with me for a moment? Our Father, we give you praise and thanks for the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is through and because of the cross that now we can stand before you. It is because of the cross of Christ, that plain, unadorned cross, that now, Lord, we are able to enter his gates with thanksgiving and to enter your courts with praise and that for all eternity we are accepted. We are given that privileged status of being children of the living God and we have access at all times to you because of And through the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our King of kings and Lord of lords, we we give you thanks, our Lord Jesus, for dying on a cross. How brave, how committed you were to your Father's plan. And we give you thanks, Holy Spirit, for drawing us to yourself so that we might see the beauty of Christ in his death, his resurrection, and his ministry to us now. 
And now we do enter your gates with thanksgiving and your courts with praise, all because of Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.